This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right. uh, Obviously, a shooting at a Texas church uh, saw 26 people dead, ranging in age from 5 to 72. When asked if U.S. gun control measures uh, could have been a key to the shooting, uh, President uh, President Trump replied, mental health is your problem here. Uh, what is, uh, of course, the problem here? Uh, I think the problem, I think he's very got a very valid point that mental health uh, certainly does play a huge part in all of this, uh, especially when it's trying to survive in a gun culture. Uh, this simply does not happen all over the world. Uh, and uh, although when in Asia, President Trump alluded that every, every country has its mental health issues, and of course, why wouldn't they? Uh, they don't go about it this way. So, yes, it is a mental health issue, uh, but it's a mental health issue you're trying to uh, deal with in a pro-gun culture. To talk more about all of this, Ju, uh, Ju Young Lee is with us, Associate Professor of Sociology, University of Toronto, and is on the line with us now. Ju, Lung, thank you, or Ju Young, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. We greatly appreciate this. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So here we go, another one. Should any of us be surprised? Will this, you know, and many will say, why would this one change the discussion if Vegas didn't and Sandy Hook and la, 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 down the line we go? What are your thoughts, Ju Young? Yeah, I don't. I, I think at this point, most people um, who are watching all of these tragedies unfold, seemingly week after week, are less and less surprised. Um, I think people are becoming desensitized to uh, the mass shooting. Uh, we just saw Las Vegas happen, uh, you know, outside of a month ago, and now we're into uh, November, and we already have another one of the top ten deadliest modern-day massacres, this one in Sutherland Springs. So um, I think there's a sense of hopelessness. There's a sense of frustration and anger. Um, a lot of it is directed at uh, the NRA and at President Trump. Um, but the, the curious thing about these events is that they also um, encourage people to, to buy more guns. And that's the thing that we see after mass shootings, that uh, one half of the country in the U.S. is is appalled and wants to call for tighter gun control measures, and the other half uh, sees these shootings as more evidence that more and more people should be armed. Yeah, we certainly heard that uh, that response, that if more people in the church were armed, this person wouldn't have gotten away with what he did, which just seems a bizarre way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about becoming desensitized to this issue, and some may say that parts of Europe are uh, desensitized to perhaps terrorist attacks, suicide bombers, this sort of thing, uh, you know, whatever whatever the, the terror tactic of the day is, uh, they've certainly just become accustomed to living with this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's the same with gun crime in the United States. Do you think Americans equate that with terrorism at all? Like, I mean, you know, President Trump's so quick to point out uh, terrorism when there's a couple of people shot, but when there's a mass shooting like this and it's mental illness, uh, he doesn't equate mental illness living in a gun culture. I, mm-hmm. Do do Americans equate their problem with with guns equal to or like domestic terrorism or foreign terrorism in, in these other countries? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the really interesting things that has been circulating on social media after uh, Las Vegas and this latest tragedy in Texas is how uh, politicians like Donald Trump will come out and immediately denounce an act that is linked to uh, radical Islam as a sign of terrorism. So we had an attack in New York City uh, on Halloween that he came out and immediately framed as a terrorist attack, but there's a reticence or a reluctance to, to use the same term when the person committing the violence is a white male. Um, and so this is something that we've seen time and time again in the ways that media reports things. Uh, one, one great example is during Hurricane Katrina, uh, there was a news article of a black family um, carrying a bunch of items amidst the flood, and then there was another picture of a white family, and the black family was reported as looting, whereas the white family was uh, reported in a much more sympathetic light. Um, so, you know, social scientists who study the media have pointed to this disparity for a long time, and I think we're seeing it in the ways that uh, Trump and Republican 
Republicans in Congress talk about different shootings depending on the identity of the shooter. Yeah, but the media certainly isn't on Trump's side. He complains about that on a daily basis. So where, who sides who on here? Yeah, I think, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure if it's even a, a, a conscious or deliberate choice on the part of the media. I think sometimes these are, um, you know, sociologists would call them frames, um, but they're basically just words and concepts that we immediately attach to people when we talk about them. And some of it is happening at a very unconscious level. Um, you know, for example, when people use the word thug, it, it kind of evokes a certain racial imagery. Uh, typically, people say thug, and the, the kind of stand-in is that they're referring to somebody who is an African-American in the U.S. Um, and so that's just one example of, of this. So I think some of this could be unconscious labeling. So uh, so y- you think it's, it's partially the media as well that is not labeling this as domestic terrorism? Because is this, cons- like, I don't know, I, I guess to, to be officially a terrorist, it's got to be part of some sort of organization. Uh, I, I, I can certainly see that definition changing. Uh, it certainly must be fluid in the time that we live in now. Mm-hmm. So is this domestic terrorism? I think it depends on who you talk to. I, I, I look at uh, these kinds of events from the perspective of victims, and to the extent that a mass shooting like the one that happened in Sutherland Springs evokes fear and panic and terror in people in that community, then uh, and absolutely it's terrorism. Uh, but there are folks who study uh, political violence and who say that there's an importance in drawing distinctions between uh, events that make people feel panic and terror and those that are carried out on behest or behalf of, as you mentioned, the larger uh, political organization. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's some kind of debate in this field. Uh, I, I tend to think that if it, if it has the same consequences, then it's, it's okay to label it as such. Well, it certainly checks off every box except for the organizational part of it. And again, if this guy is running around in army fatigues, it, it, same thing with the guy in Vegas. It certainly was planned. He may not be part of a greater organization, but there certainly was intent, and it certainly was well planned. Right. So at, at the end of the day, uh, you know, perhaps uh, the definition of Domestic terrorism uh, needs to change to just include disenfranchised Americans, no? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, you can look at other cases like the Dylan Roof case in uh, the U.S. where he shot up another church and killed a bunch of African-American churchgoers. Um, it's not clear that he was necessarily carrying that out on behalf of, like, an organization, but he definitely saw himself as part of a, a white supremacist movement. Um, and so even if he was acting as, quote-unquote, a lone wolf, uh, his actions, at least in the ways that he's ta- spoken about them in the, in the aftermath, were very much part of this larger historical project that he saw himself a part of. Uh, how do you explain the mentality of the best way to stop someone with a gun is someone else with a gun? Yeah, you know, so this is a, this is a slogan that the NRA has really been pushing on voters for many years, and they've done so without any real evidence that it actually works that way. In fact, everything that we have in research, in the research world, shows the opposite, that having a gun on you makes you more likely to get shot. Having a gun in your home makes you more likely to um, kill your spouse or injure them or commit suicide. So, you know, they've, they've kind of put this romantic hero image out there in the media um, and it's something that we see in our favorite movies. You know, we see movies of gunslingers who, when things go awry, they're able to dodge bullets and, and take out the bad guys. But, um, you know, this is simply not how things work in real life. And we can see many different examples um, from CCTV footage of shootouts to reports by police officers and military personnel that. Um, getting in a gunfight is a very scary thing, and it makes people very bad at shooting. So I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I, you know, this 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 image is basically uh, based around a fiction that has been, you know, now accepted as a reality. Um, do you think Americans uh, ask themselves, where else does this happen in the world? Does this happen? What what what? other country can you compare this to? Where else does this happen on the planet? It doesn't happen in, I mean, it, it, mass shootings do happen in other parts of the world, but in, in terms of 
countries who are, um, I guess you could say, part of the, the sort of developed industrialized world, uh, they don't happen as frequently as they do in the U.S. And as a form, as an expat, uh, as an American expat, um, I can tell you that I think a big part of the reason that this problem is not going away is because the NRA is so good at capitalizing on these tragedies. Uh, they, they, they basically make it seem as if um, these tragedies could be prevented if more and more people were carrying guns, if we got rid of gun-free zones, if we had teachers carrying guns, if we had um, you know, people carrying guns inside of hospitals and inside of other public institutions. Um, so they sell fear, and, and, and people equate buying a gun and, and consuming many guns as a way of somehow protecting themselves, even though that's never really been borne out by the evidence. Um, constantly, uh, supporters of the NRA and even the president will uh, deflect this conversation and say it's got nothing to do with guns. It's all about mental illness. Right. So does that mean that now we're going to do something about mental illness? There'll be more support there, more funds there. I mean, either way, whether it's a, a gun control issue or a mental illness issue, whichever mm-hmm. one you decide to label it as, do you not need to address it? Or is, yeah, it's a mental health issue, which basically means you don't need to do anything about gun control, but you're not going to do anything about mental health either. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very cynical about this because um, this is a common way that Republicans try to deflect the conversation away from guns. Um, however, I don't know if they're mutually exclusive. I think that it can be a gun issue and a mental health issue. Um, and I just find it incredibly ironic that um, you know Donald Trump is saying this is a mental health issue. Meanwhile, he and Republican Congress are trying to dismantle Obamacare, which provides millions and millions of Americans with basic access to mental health care services. Um, without, if these repeals would have gone through, then we would have seen upwards around 24 million Americans who would not have that kind of access. So um, this this idea that he somehow really cares about mental health and mental illness now is, is sort of interesting to me uh, because it doesn't... Will he not have to focus on that now just because he did nothing with gun or he, he appears to do nothing with gun control? Like, what are you going to do? Just let this run the way it is? If you think this is the problem or this is the solution, rather, shouldn't you put resources towards it? Yeah, I mean, I think that that would be the ideal case scenario. Um, unfortunately, I think recent history tells us that the news cycle will happen and something else will happen. Maybe something else will happen with North Korea or some other international event and people's attentions and energies will be directed elsewhere. Um, you know, there was a great saying after Sandy Hook, which is that if um, seeing little children being murdered and gunned down with an AR-15 isn't enough to lead to... Uh, policy change, then maybe nothing will. Yeah, good point. Um, Obviously, in this situation, well, we don't know yet, uh, it could be a mental health issue, Mm -hmm. uh, but does he realize it's a mental health issue, just like other countries have, and he pointed that out, every country's got the mental health issues, Mm -hmm. uh, but they don't address it this way. It doesn't end in gun crime. It doesn't end in in death. Uh, Can you draw that comparison? Everyone else has got mental health issues, but yeah, we've got, uh, these guys got a mental health issue within a gun culture. That's different. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. I mean, you know, mental health issues are not unique to the U.S. or any country for that matter, but the thing that is unique to the U.S. Is the guns. Yeah, exactly, that you can go into a store and purchase a semi-automatic rifle that can be outfitted to fire rapidly and and mimic an automatic rifle like we saw in uh, Las Vegas. Um, that can carry a large magazine that forces that that makes it easier for you to dispense rounds without having to reload, which makes police work harder. Um, you know, so I, when I was a resident, in, so I'm from the U.S. and I lived in Philadelphia and I studied gun culture and I also studied gunshot victims. And I was amazed at how easy it is to buy a gun as long as you don't have a felony on your record. Uh, you could have had a misdemeanor. You could have had a charge pleaded down. As long as you don't have a felony and you've never been admitted into a mental hospital, you can go into a gun store and undergo a, a, an instant background check that allows you to walk out that day with an AK-47 or an AR-15. It's just that easy. Um, and I think most responsible gun owners in the U.S. and in Canada 
would say that it should be a little bit harder, that it, we, should, we should treat a gun as a, a huge responsibility, much like we treat uh, getting a driver's license. Mm. Good point. Uh, Ju Young Lee has been with us, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Toronto, talking about the Texas shooting. Ju Young, thank you very much for the time and expertise. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. President Trump, of course, in Asia has refused to rule out military action when it comes to North Korea, saying that the country is a threat to the civilized world and has been for uh, a couple of decades, and he wants to bring that uh, all into uh, control. Uh, Here's what he had to say about political prisoners. I spoke with people who were devastated, and they've been devastated for many years. They think they're alive, but they don't know. Probably makes it even tougher that way. Joining us is Simon Palomar, Research Assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation. He is with us now. Simon, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. So uh, many were wondering what would happen with Trump and the uh, uh, the bull in the China shop when it comes to, uh, of course, heading to Asia. Uh, Give us your thoughts on how he has handled himself so far. Well, so far, I think he's probably... uh done as well as anybody expected and perhaps uh, perhaps exceeded expectations a little. Uh, before he left for Asia, his national security advisor, H.R. Uh, McMaster, you know, made it clear that you know the president will use whatever language the president feels comfortable using when he goes to you know Japan, Korea, he'll be going to China, Vietnam, the Philippines. Uh, you know, a number of countries are involved in some pretty tense geopolitical confrontations. Uh, the United States has some trade grievances with some of those countries, and, you know, the McMaster made it clear the president will say what he wants. Well, the State Department, well, the National Security Council continues to lay out, you know, what the U.S. policy, you know, is going to be in more in more tempered words. And I think at this point, it looks like the Trump administration's senior advisors have become comfortable with that pattern. They not may not be delighted by it. They might hope that, you know, the president uses his words a little more carefully and is, you know, perhaps a bit more diplomatic. But at this juncture, it's been almost a, a year now, I think they realize that the president will use incendiary language, will misspeak, but that a lot of foreign uh, governments, bureaucrats, diplomats, they're really listening closely to what Trump's advisors, what other senior people in the government say, and, and they're, they're really taking their policy cues from them. So has the world finally got to the point where they've just uh, accepted him for what he is? I, I think to a large extent you know um i can say from you know my experience uh, over the last year working with with uh working with people in the field that there there is a bit of uh i wouldn't say comfort but there is this acknowledgement that yeah this president you know he was a reality tv star he's always been very outspoken he maybe doesn't always have the you know the best grasp of the issues and he's going to speak his mind and the, the message has been, well, really, you know, okay, listen to the president, of course, that's important, but also listen to the vice president, listen to the secretary of state, secretary of commerce, listen to the national security advisor, and, and look at what the United States is doing on the ground, and, and that's the full picture. So, you know, Donald Trump, don't, don't react too, too uh, immediately, and don't overreact to the president's thoughts, because sometimes he seems to be, you know, um, Balling and, and, you know, speaking in a stream of consciousness. Uh, you said he exceeded expectations. Give us an example. How? Well, um, you know, he's avoided particularly incendiary talk. Um, so far, the discussions with Japan on North Korea have been, I wouldn't say, you know, particularly constructive and that they're not breaking new ground, but there hasn't been any, you know, new outrageous threats. There has been a repeat of, of anything on the scale of the United Nations General Assembly speech where where uh, Trump laid out a you know the, the the total destruction argument for North Korea. So in that regard it hasn't been as word as bad as it can be. Uh, obviously, he's taking a more strong-arm approach. Uh, he, he's quoted in uh, as saying uh, this past weekend, some people may say my rhetoric is very strong, but look what's happened, uh, what has happened with very weak rhetoric in the last 25 years. 
are are there parts of the world that are looking for this aggression, that are looking for this leadership? I think it plays very well domestically. There are certainly parts of the uh, Republican base uh, that, you know, you can speak with people, you can, you know, look at the polling numbers. Some people really do like the, the hard, harsh rhetoric. You know, Barack Obama, one of the major criticisms of him was that he was perhaps a bit too tempered and that he should be getting angrier about this stuff. Well, but it's one thing to do this, Simon, there's one thing to do this uh, domestically in order to, to whip up your base, but he's in Asia. How are they reacting to this? I, I, again, you have to look, I mean, you have to think about, you know, the public reaction, and uh, these are very divisive issues, right? In South Korea, for example, I mean, there are, the South Korean uh, general population is very divided on how to approach North Korea. Some people appreciate this kind of tough talk. Others find it quite frightening or concerned it could could lead to war. But again, amongst, you know, diplomats, amongst bureaucrats, people in government, I think that at this point they are, you know, like I said, they're not happy with this kind of rhetoric, but they're comfortable in that they think they understand at this point that the president is generally not serious when he says this. Uh, how is how are the people uh, reacting when the president touches down? Obviously, they're giving him uh, full honors uh, uh, in Japan and such. What what is the reaction of the public? Well, you know, again, it depends. It seems that uh, you know, in, in South Korea, he's uh, you know a somewhat divisive figure because you know it's not just his rhetoric, but there's also been you know other matters in Korean U.S. policy over the last year that have been somewhat um, you know sensitive. The United States deployed missile defense systems to South Korea this past year. That was highly, uh, highly divisive. Some Koreans very much in favor of it. Some very much opposed, concerned that it would worsen relations with China, make the make relations with North Korea even worse. So again, it's a very, you know, very mixed bag. And it's kind of difficult, I think, to separate, you know, Donald Trump from, you know, overall feelings about the United States and its presence in East Asia, where, you know, some Koreans, some Japanese, you know, are very much favor of an, uh, an ongoing American presence. Others feel that ultimately the United States makes things worse in their neighborhood and exacerbates existing tensions, you know, with China, with North Korea. Uh, Trump obviously wants to sell Japan protection, saying that uh, he can equip them with what they need to be blowing these missiles out of the sky. has been critical that they haven't tried to do that uh, in the past. He says he will shoot them out of the sky when he com- when he completes the purchase of lots of additional military equipment from the United States. How is that flying over there? What's the reaction? Yeah. Well, I mean, especially um, to a country that after World War II decided that it wasn't going to do anything like this and instead, I mean, in, you know, invest in its economy and such. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I mean, Shinzo Abe just, uh, you know, he called a snap election, as your, your listeners may have heard, and just won re election this past month. Uh, he's got a situation almost akin to Canada in the 1990s when you had one party that was so dominant and a, a shattered opposition that could not. You know, it could not win an election. So Shinzo Abe's uh, push to, you know, um, modernize Japanese armed forces, to amend the Constitution to allow the Japanese armed forces to, you know, deploy outside of their borders more often or maybe take somewhat aggressive action like shooting down a missile, etc. There is substantial opposition to Abe's agenda. But, you know, Prime Minister Abe has been very good at playing the parliamentary game very good at dividing opposition parties, very good at strategically picking when to call elections. So, well, you know, the Japanese populace is very divided, and there are parts of his platform, especially those parts that involve changing the Constitution and how, how and what the Japanese armed forces can do. Right now, it looks like Abe is in control. Whether or not we will see, you know, Japan attempt to shoot down a, a North Korean ballistic missile test anytime soon. I mean, I, I think that's still maybe a bridge too far. I think Abe wants to be able to credibly threaten that, wants to be able to point to North Korea and say, look, we've reformed our constitution. We're, uh, we're updating the equipment of our armed forces. We can shoot a missile down, wants to be able to credibly threaten that. Whether or not he's going to do it, I think it's still a coin flip. 
Uh, how is North Korea reacting to this visit by Trump? Uh, it, wouldn't this be a good time to uh, launch another missile just for a test? Well, that's certainly what uh, South Korean intelligence agencies suspect might happen. Uh, the last couple of weeks, there's been talk about intelligence coming out of South Korea. It looks like there's a lot of activity around some of North Korea's uh, missile sites where they like to test engines, where they like to launch missiles from for test purposes. And there is some speculation that, you know, when Mr. Trump, uh, you know, touches down in either Seoul or Beijing, that this might be a good time to, you know, again, test the president, see how serious uh, he is about forming, uh, you know, a coalition to constrain North Korea, because it's important to understand in recent weeks, we've seen, you know, a, uh, a lot of activity between South Korea and China. Their special envoys on North Korea are talking regularly. They're now talking about having a major summit sometime in the next few months. Is that why things have been relatively quiet uh, over the last couple of weeks? Because it seemed a few weeks ago we were on our way to World War III. And then all of a yeah. sudden, radio silence. That is part of it. Because I think we got to always remember, you know, we sit here in North America. United States is our biggest trade partner. They're right south of us. The U.S. president says something, we pay attention. And we tend to get this sense that really this is a confrontation between North Korea and the United States. But if you go to South Korea, if you go to Japan, I mean, these countries have lived with this challenge for decades, and they're very concerned about it. And, you know, relations between South Korea and China, for example, they're warm, they're cold, they ebb and flow. And recently, the two countries have been talking more. There's even talk about a trilateral summit between the three countries, China, South Korea, and Japan, which would be hard to pull off. But we are seeing these three countries maybe taking some steps to take a little bit more control of the situation, you know, keep the Americans involved, but reduce their role and, and you know, really send the message that, listen, this is our backyard. We're concerned about this, too. We're going to find some way to address it. And a little bit of, you know, a little bit of calmness from the Americans would go a long way. And it's also the North Koreans need to remember that we're not going to stand aside and let you, you know, run amok. You talked about calmness. Uh, it sounds like we're in the middle of another arms race. Uh, potentially, but it's, it's, uh, you know, we have to remember, you know, North Korea is still, you know, uh, uh, a little tiny minnow in a, in a sea full of whales. Um, United States is not going to get into an arms race race with North Korea because North Korea can't get into an arms race with the United States. Likewise with, uh, China, you know, for South Korea, for Japan, where they've tried to restrain their military capabilities over the years, uh, you know, Japan because of the legacy of the Second World War, um, South Korea because, you know, they're in a delicate situation. They don't want to provoke China too much. They don't want to make things in North Korea worse. We could see a reaction from those two countries, and arguably we are seeing it. You know, South Korea has been upgrading its conventional missile capabilities quite a bit the last few years. Japan, they're, they're you know, like we just talked about, Shinzo Abe's on this push to modernize the Japanese armed forces. But importantly, they're doing it quietly. They're not parading their capabilities. They're not issuing direct threats to uh, North Korea, except when North Korea threatens them. So we're seeing maybe a small arms race between uh, those three countries. But, you know, when push comes to shove, the United States isn't going to get into an arms race with North Korea because North Korea could never win one. You talked about negotiations or talks between North Korea and China, and that's why things perhaps have been quiet of late. Uh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in, in that room. What are they talking about, and, and what is China saying to North Korea? Well, um, what China might be saying to North Korea right now, uh, there's a couple of you know, interesting, interesting possibilities there. One is that you know, the past couple of months, uh, we have seen in the United States, the United States Department of the Treasury, who has control over things like financial sanctions, prohibiting, for example, a Chinese bank from doing business in the United States. They've gotten more active in recent, uh, in the last couple of months, and actually have talked about sanctioning a couple of Chinese banks, saying you can't open up an account at an American institution. You can't transfer funds to the United States if you're trying to facilitate, you know, the import of a bunch of Chinese goods to the United States you're not allowed to interact with any American banks, essentially will cut you out of the American economy. 
that got the attention of the Chinese when the uh, United States Treasury said they're doing that. It, it really caught their attention because I think they think it's credible. They could actually do this. So there was a, were orders from the Chinese government that state-owned enterprises in particular stop doing business with North Korean entities. Don't get caught up in this. You need to keep access to the American market. So they might be sending that message to the North Koreans that this is serious. We're taking it seriously. And you can't expect us to turn a blind eye if you, uh, if you are attempting some, you know, under-the-table transactions with Chinese firms, we will pay attention. We will stop that because we're not going to risk getting, you know, a Chinese bank, for example, cut out of the U.S. market. So that could be, you know, one of the possibilities right now. Uh, obviously, a trade big issue, uh, and of course, uh, the partnership initially, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the U.S. decides to bail out of now is is trying to do some other sort of deal. Uh, how is that? Uh, how is that accepted? How is that received? And and what can he possibly do and 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 sort of make amends for bailing on this? Yeah, it's a great question because about this time, I would say maybe, you know, 13 months ago, there was a lot of optimism that, you know, Hillary Clinton was going to win the U.S. election. Trans-Pacific Partnership was a shoe-in. This would be great for the United States, great for Japan, Canada, all the participants. It would uh, it would really help countries that are trying to avoid being dependent on China. It would give them an option, a new export market. There's a lot of optimism. Now, of course, the U.S. pulled out, but didn't win. And now, you know, Donald Trump, you know, gave some sort of confounding comments to some Japanese business executives the other day, you know, asking them to, for example, you know, build cars in the United States. Well, I mean, most Japanese auto manufacturers already build their cars in the United States. They want to sell them in the United States. Really? So, I mean, the, 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 the Trump administration, they are, I think, struggling on this file. They complain that the rest of the world exports too much to them when the facts really just aren't on their side. And, you know, in Japan in particular, Korea, they take these concerns seriously. They want to keep the United States engaged in Asia. They want to keep that American military presence there since, you know, on the whole, it probably stabilizes things in their, from their point of view. So they want to keep the United States happy and engaged. But if you're, uh, for example, an executive at Toyota, you have no response to American concerns because you already produce most of the cars that you sell in the United States, already produce them in the United States. So it puts them in a, in a, in a difficult position. Since there's only so much they can give the Americans, there's only, you know, only so many, uh, so many cars or, or heavy machinery or whatever that they can produce in the United States. And at a certain point, you know, it's getting blood from, from a stone. So, you know, as your listeners may know, there is now talk about reviving the Trans-Pacific Partnership without the United States. There's still enough... Well, exactly. I mean, now, at what point does the United States become left behind in this? Trump said, we will have more trade than anyone ever thought under TPP. That I can tell you. Um, He said it wasn't the right deal for the United States, and that while probably some of you in this room disagree, ultimately, I will be proven right. How does that fly? I think that is probably, you know, like I just said, a lot of America's Asian allies want to play ball with the United States on this issue, want to find some way to increase trade, and everybody thought TPP was it. Right now, I mean, there's a, like I said, there's a couple problems. The facts just simply aren't on the president's side on this one. And it's not the 1980s, for example when Japan was exporting a huge number of cars built in Japan to the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, times have changed. In many ways, as economic analysis is stuck about 20, 30 years ago. So I, you know, the impression I get is that this is something that, you know, Japan and Korea in particular will try to work on with the United States. But ultimately, you know, if there's no possible deal I mean, Japan already has a trade agreement with the United States. Korea already has a trade agreement with the United States. Uh, They're not interested in engineering, you know, specific quotas on on, um, imports and exports, at least not yet. And, you know, given that the Trump administration is picking fights on trade with North America, they're picking fights on trade with China, they're picking all Hmm. these fights, I, I wouldn't bet on the United States, you know, successfully winning 
every one of these battles, and I think that a lot of their Asian partners are, are aware that they are stretched thin. Only got about 30 seconds left here, Simon. Uh, the Japanese Prime Minister and Trump, uh, dear friends, uh, obviously some golf course diplomacy going on here. How does this help? You know, it's, that's a good question, and it's, it's a question that comes up often, how much do those personal relationships matter? You know, I think, you know, in the you know, final analysis, it's always better to have, you know, at least cordial relationships, the ability to get along, you know, like Brian Mulroney and Ronald Reagan or, or uh, Jean Chrétien and Bill Clinton. You know, they had personal friendships, which certainly helped when you're tackling a really tough issue. You know, as it's reported, Donald Trump hasn't been successful at, you know, forging those relationships with a lot of international leaders. Abe might be the closest he has. And since it looks like, you know, Shinzo Abe is going to be Prime Minister of Japan for the next, for the foreseeable future, and really, you know, he's got control. Probably not, not a good thing. That being said, you know, I don't know what their relationship is like on the golf course. I don't know what they talk about. I don't know. Apparently, most business like. people will say you can tell an awful lot about a person the way they play on a golf course, even when it comes to cheating, that sort of thing. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, you can tell a lot about a person. At least that's my wife's story. I'm sticking to it. Simon Palomar is from Withers Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Hi, Scott. Attempted to assist my grade 10, grade, uh, my 10-year grade 5 nephew with his math problem last night. It involves something called fractals and whatever. Uh, There were four educated adults present, and the only way to begin to understand how to solve it was to Google it. Are, uh, are the teachers teaching math or computer skills? Is this the kind of math relevant in today's world? Uh, or should we be going back to basics, uh, says Judy, failing grade five math. To talk more about all of this is Annie Kidder, Executive Director, People for Education. She is with us now. Hello, Annie. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. No problem. How many times have we talked about this? <laughs> Really, a lot of times. Poor math skills uh, for those in our area, uh, poor math scores, rather. Uh, Is this about the test in changing the test? Is it not matching what we're teaching? How do you answer this question or even this email that I just read? Or uh, is it a combo of everything in the world, Mm. which is probably the most uh, likely? you know, so that is, you know, I think we've got to look at everything that we keep, you know, we talk about the scores and get all head up about the, the change in those, but we're not looking necessarily at what are all the reasons why. So, yes, you know, kids learn how to do the area of a leaf now. Who knew you could? And I still don't know how. Um, hmm. But <laughs> um, kids learn a lot about the kind of concepts of math. And I always horribly use my 25-year-old as an example where I go, she can't do her time tables, but she can do advanced statistics. So right. maybe there's some value in that. Um, but the scores have been changing. They have been going down. Um, people are raising concerns. There are definitely concerns about kids going into college, for instance, whether or not they have all the math skills they need. So I think that, you know, we have to fight against our instincts to go with our instinct on what the problem is. This isn't the way they taught math when I was young. Well, I guess um, thank goodness for that because it's called progress. Uh, I don't mind that I don't understand what they're teaching them as long as what they're teaching them is something that they're going to be able to use in the future and get them a job. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, no, 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 and I think that, but I think, and I think we're not sure yet whether or not they, mm. this is going to be full of double negatives, whether they are or not they aren't getting those yeah. things that they need for a job. But I do think that it's important that we have a discussion about it. But my, my big but in this is that we have to make sure that we don't get so kind of head up about the math piece that we're forgetting all the other vital skills to get a job. So when employers talk about what they need, they actually don't talk about math as much as they talk about uh, the need for people who can learn stuff uh, right. that's brand new when they're in a job. Who the ability to learn, critical can, thinking. Yeah, so to be able to exactly think, to um, to be able to solve problems that are complicated. So we have to make sure that, yep, math's important, but so are those you know, what we're called, many call those competencies that underlie everything. And there's a tendency in education systems sometimes, because it's all so political, that if you've got headlines in the paper saying we've got a math problem, 
you know, the political arm of us goes, okay, we're going to spend all our money right. and focus on math and miss the other important things. So we all have to sort of be careful about our, our reactions to uh, that we don't overreact to one area of education uh, and then, you know, the pendulum kind of swings off and, you know, yet another kind of extreme. How do we explain the lower scores in math, yet reading and writing seems to be higher? Well, I, you know, that, but I, I don't, I don't know, and I don't think we can. Maybe reading and writing doesn't change as much as math does. No, well, I think that it, the thing about, the thing about them is that none of them have changed that much. The curriculum yeah. hasn't changed that much. The teaching hasn't changed in math either. So then you have to look at what has changed and whether or not um, it's partly attitudes towards math. You know, am I at home going, oh, you know, I don't like math or math is boring or whatever. Um, have we, you know, we, we, do, we have to un- try to understand what, ki- we have to listen to kids and about what they're saying about math um, and their attitudes towards it. We have to be careful that, in fact, the scores have gone down, yes, they have, in grade six, um, but they actually go back up again in grade nine. So are we, you know, are the boards who are saying right now, you know what, uh, you're not measuring the right thing in grade hmm. six? That could be an issue, too. Uh, is math king? I mean, that's all we hear about. It's all math, 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 math. You don't have math, you're done, kid. There's no way you're going to survive. We gave up gym for math, Annie. Uh-huh. So... Well, no, I, you see, I, that part I don't think is true. If you don't have the capacity to keep on learning, you won't survive because you're going to have to be in, like, ten different jobs and understand the incredibly messy world. Um, so that, you, you can't survive without that. It's very, it is very hard to survive without being able to read and write and do math. There's no question. But we can't prioritize math over everything else. We're, it's not going to get us the well-rounded, totally educated kids that we need uh, when they, we, they graduate. So, yes, math is important. But, no, it's not necessarily more important than everything else. And we can't throw out things like health and phys ed in order to do more math. There's lots of evidence the other way around that the more, you know, exercise, the more healthy mm. kids feel mentally and physically, the better they do in school anyway. So that's where balance comes in. Well, our next story we're going to talk about with the next guest is in regard to financial literacy, how they're starting to teach this in grade 10 now. Mm-hmm. This has been talked about for a long time, but many would have looked at this, ah, this is a frill, this is fluff, this is snowflake, this is nothing. We need more math in there, even <laughs> though this is math. It, it, it literally is learning your multiplication tables. Uh-huh. Uh, but these are the sort of programs that get cut in, you know, to make room for more of the STEM su- uh, core yeah. subjects. Yeah. So uh, how do we balance this, and, and how positive is it to have a financial literacy course for well, kids? Well, I think, again, if, if, if financial literacy is just an add-on, it'll come and go like every other sort of fad that comes and goes in education. I, and I could be wrong about that. I'm not an expert in financial literacy, and you just have to look at my bank account to know my... The, 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 so this uh, may be a good thing, Annie. <laughs> shallowness <laughs> of my skills there. But I actually think this is a case for, you know, having a deep, deep conceptual understanding of not just math, but how the world works is more important than an add-on financial literacy course. So in, in order to truly be financially literate, A, I have to understand myself, I have to understand limits, I have to understand persistence. I do have to understand how math works, but I also have to understand conceptually the idea of banks, of loans, of uh, the economy, of economics, uh, how we make choices, and a lot of the things I, I could argue uh, in terms of you know why my bank account looks the way it does has to do with my have to, is connected more to my social emotional skills than my mm-hmm. understanding of, of finances. You know, being able to resist, you know, just wanting everything that you see in front of you, um, things like that. So being able to control impulses, those are all part of uh, financial literacy in a way. So to me, we have to make sure that we're not sticking more things on the outside of the system, but understanding instead what are the core competencies you need that run through all of those things um, so that you're, again, that we're educating well-rounded people. Annie Kidder has been with us, Executive Director, People for Education. Annie, as always, thanks for uh, trying to answer all the questions that we can never seem to answer. (laughs) Thank you, Annie. Have a good day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We talk a lot and have uh, at length about 
um, financial literacy and how it is missing in young adults and how it should be part of a student curriculum. I mean, when you think about it, we're talking about math. That's really all this is, is budgeting. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Prakash Amarasuria is with us, formerly with the Toronto Youth Cabinet and now Management Associate at TD Bank and an advocate for financial literacy to be taught. He is with us now. Prakash, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thank you for having me. So why is this important to you? Why did this become a, a focal point for you? Well, when I was in high school, I actually uh, worked five part-time jobs simultaneously. Uh, my parents both lost their jobs in the 2008 crisis, and that was the experience that taught me how important financial literacy was. And at a time when I needed it the most, I recognized that I wasn't adequately uh, equipped to handle the situation, especially in terms of school. And so throughout my life, I've always kind of learned financial literacy on my own. And then once I graduated, I wanted to do something about it. How difficult was this time for your family and you? And and how did you take so much from this? Uh, well, it, when I was 15, it's, uh, financial literacy is not something that you think about. You're kind of, you didn't really have bills to pay or, uh, or any income coming in. And so I... I just realized at that moment how money is, I think, integral to being, how it's part of my life, but also like how I'll need it in the future. And um, when I was trying to figure out, okay, budgeting or trying to figure out how do I think uh, strategize on making a financial literacy strategy, I felt like I was uh, unprepared. And so I wanted to find a way to do it. And my parents, especially being newcomers to Canada, weren't the best equipped to be able to tell me how to do so. And so... That's something that I've kind of felt the entire time, so it was a very difficult situation. Many have said, many experts say, the last place you should go for financial advice is your parents because it's just (laughs) a different generation. They just think differently. Where is this a great idea, and we've talked about it on this show for many years, where is this at now? How do you get it from a great idea to actually implementation? So last year uh, with the Toronto Youth Cabinet, we came up with a proposal of putting it into the Grade 10 Careers course. Uh, the reason why is because it's a mandatory course, meaning that everybody across the province would be taking it. Mm-hmm. It also made sense to put financial literacy with careers because you can't have a successful career unless you're able to manage your money. And uh, we also thought that the course needed a severe revamp, and so putting a useful topic into a course that needed it was a win-win. Um, and then we published that proposal with a petition to kind of get the the public's interest into it, uh, we knew that parents, teachers, students, and all citizens would kind of be endorsed for it. So we did a whole media release, and uh, we got the attention of the Minister of Education, who was gracious enough to meet with us last year and accepted our proposal in early November of last year. How do you squeeze this in, Prakash? Because everybody just wants the STEM subjects, man. It's all about math. Well, and, and, you know, financial literacy certainly is math in its more basic form with, with budgets and such. But how do you squeeze all that in when, you know, there just isn't enough time to squeeze in everything that is needed? That's a great question. I think that's something that we were concerned about as well. Uh, We know that teachers are already stressed with the curriculum as it is. So taking a careers course, which teachers and students have both recognized, um, is kind of shallow in some senses. And so revamping it to um, include things like financial literacy, but also digital literacy, career pathways, entrepreneurship, uh, that's something that can be done in the careers course itself. Um, We also want to make sure that um, students wanted to learn something that they um, that they were interested in. A lot of students complain about life skills being lacked in their courses, and so financial literacy was something that a lot of students said that they would actively like to uh, learn. And so putting that into a course can, I think, have positive benefits that would um, would work on that. And also with the careers course, they've done a full revamp, so it's um, it's replacing a current course, not adding a new course into it. Hmm. So what should be taught? What should be on the curriculum? Well, personally, I think things like budgeting um, and also saving strategies, but also things that go further, such as definitions of terms like mortgages, um, financing, um, interest in terms of simple and compound is already included in the course. But going beyond that to kind of talking about how financial literacy would be affected across our entire lives, I think was the importance. Um, With this course, I think they're focusing on budgeting, credit as well as OSAP, which is, I think, a great start, but uh, I think it does need to go further than that. So where are you taking this? What are you doing now? So personally, um, I've been, um, outside of the course, I've been doing presentations, workshops, seminars, 
and uh, conferences regarding financial literacy because it's one thing to be taught in schools, but I think it's something that needs to go above that, uh, especially on the grassroots level. I think it's something that we need to have in our conversations in our daily lives with our peers, parents, and amongst ourselves. And on top of that, I also I also meet with the Ministry of Education uh, every once in a while, um, especially recently with Financial Literacy Month being this month. Uh, we're in the midst of looking at the pilots that have come back from this year and figuring out how to put it into the courses for September 2018. And are you in the banking industry now? Uh, yes. Yeah. So when I started the, uh, the petition, I was working in the bank, and I, that's how I noticed that financial literacy is something that is in heavy need. Um, people who may look financially confident aren't actually, and it's uh, something of a taboo topic. And so that's why I thought it's something to hmm. kind of get into the forefront so we could have more open conversations about it. So clearly this made such an impact on you, it became a career choice. Yeah, it did, especially coming from a health background, a complete 180. Good for you. Good for you. All right. Uh, so it looks like this is going to happen then. It does. And um, I'll be the first one to say that it's um, it's good to be skeptical about it. I, I think that we need to uh, critique it as necessary. It's some, I think we all need to pay attention and try to figure out what's the best way to teach financial literacy. I think the two biggest conflicts will be, uh, one, how do we make teachers confident and competent about a topic that mm. is personal to them? Mm. Um, and how do we get students engaged on this topic as well? Like I mentioned, students may not find financial literacy to be engaging because it may not be relevant to them at that time. So how do we get them But on the other hand, what is in grade 10? Exactly. And <laughs> yeah. so, that's the other. That's the other question. And um, grade ten is also a great age because they'll be two years away from mm. uh, being able to open their first credit card. And so I think it's a great time to not too young, but not too old as well. But I do think it's, we do need to go further. Great, uh, great job, Prakash. Good for you. Way to take the initiative. It must be make, must make you feel great to see it come to this point. Yeah. Uh, yes, it is. And to be honest, I think it's it's always about I think what what do people want, especially what do young people want. I think this is the first time we've had young people stand up for themselves and say, hey, this is what I want in our education, and it's, I'm glad that uh, people were receptive to it. Good for you. Prakash Amarasuriya, uh, formerly with the Toronto Youth Cabinet, now Management Associate at the TD Bank and, and an advocate for financial literacy to be taught. Great work, Prakash. Keep it up. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.